continue with our gospel reading uh, this week in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. So far we've been introduced <clears throat> in this prologue uh, to this being who is uh, called the Word, the Word that is, was with God and the Word that is God. And we've been introduced to the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. And then today, beginning at verse 14 and ending at 18, we get the identity of the Word. Verse 14, John chapter 1, And the Word became flesh, became incarnate, took on flesh. The Word that was with God from the beginning becomes a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Never ending grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Man, love reading John. Good stuff. First Peter chapter 5 is our sermon text today. Verses 7, I mean verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Let's pray together. Father, make the word live to us today. Give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace what you want to say to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Good to see everybody today. Uh, I got some bad news and some good news. Bad news. Bad news is, forgot my watch. <laughs> can't, can't keep an eye on it for you. Sorry. Okay. Good news is, didn't forget my hearing aids, so I don't have to yell at you, so I can hear myself. Okay, so good news, bad news. Uh, boy, it's a joy to be here once again. Uh, just, Sunday mornings, I just, man, can't, can't even express it. Uh, but let's dive right in to our text this morning. In these three verses, <clears throat> I believe we see a beautiful snapshot of authentic Christianity, a picture of what real, born-again belief in Jesus looks like, what results in an ever-progressing, ever-growing way in our lives after the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. And this morning we'll see four distinctive features or hallmarks of biblical Christianity. Obviously, these aren't all of them, 
but it's the ones that I see from these three verses, okay? Remember, no list is ever exhaustive. You can always add to a list. In fact, in the October newsletter, I'll be adding uh, to my list of things that we uh, want to be sure to teach our children. That list is continuing to expand uh, over the days. So, uh, so the hallmarks of the Christian life. He starts with the word likewise in verse 5. Likewise, likewise is a, is a connective adverb. Could also be translated in the same way. Now, that's kind of puzzling. You've got to kind of wrestle with that a little bit because he he'd been talking to elders. And now he's pinpointing younger men. So how, how can that be in the same way, okay? Uh, here's my stab at it. Just as elders are to honor God in the way they shepherd the flock, in the same way the younger men are to honor God in the way they submit to the elders. So that's my take on it. You can continue to study that and read uh, from much smarter guys than I, but that's my take on it. Now, why the emphasis on young men? Because in just in the next very phrase, he, 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 he spreads it out to everybody, this, this submission thing, this humbling yourself thing. But why the, why the emphasis on young men at the beginning of the verse? Well, once again... Take a stab at it. Here's my speculation on it. Take Lee Flusher Chunk. I believe, because I was once a young man, okay? I was once one of these guys. And I believe that Peter is pinpointing and calling special attention to young men and calling them to submit to their elders because young men, especially young Calvinists, and young reform types tend to be know-it-alls. They get this new teaching, blows them away. They, they think it, they discovered something new, which goes all the way back to Jesus. Read John chapter 6, okay? But they think they found something new, and now they're, they're smarter than everybody else. I believe that's why Peter pinpoints young men. Michael Horton would call this... Uh, the cage phase of our Christian life. You know, we learn the Reformed truths, and then we need to be put in a cage for about a year until we, you know, can be balanced and stable about it. Not compromising. Please don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that. But that we can teach these truths with grace. Okay? In a gracious way. Okay? So, I, I think that's why he points to young men. Well, when we get to heaven, we can talk about it. We can... Ask Peter about it. Why the emphasis on young men? That's my take. That's my speculation on it. Because young men tend to be sometimes know-it-alls and think they can do it better than the senior pastor. You know, I, I, can, I was there in an earlier stage of life as a youth pastor at another church. I was there. I, I, I know this. Okay? I, I, I lived this. I was one of those young men who thought they could do everything better. Okay? So I believe that's why... He, Pinpoints young men. Uh, what young men need to understand. Peter is saying, your job now is to learn and follow. Okay? Your day to lead will come. It will come according to God's will when you take the baton. Yep. Still got it. Ready to be taken one day. Okay? 
Simon Kistemacher writes this in his commentary. Peter teaches that in the church, the elders are called to positions of leadership. He exhorts the junior men to be submissive to them. And he urges these young men to show respect and deference to those who are more advanced in age. By implication, they learn obedience and humility. And that's the thrust of the whole passage, right? As we're going to see, humility. They learn obedience and humility from their elders and at the same time are trained to assume leadership roles in church and community. And I'm so thankful that we see that happening here at Rockdale Community Church. The younger men are learning how to lead. And one day they will they will be where Mark and I are. Ryan and Jeremy are still young. They'll be on the elder board for a long time, okay? But Mark and, I mean, Mark and I are in the fourth quarter, buddy. We're in the fourth quarter, so uh, praise the Lord. And it's a good fourth quarter. We're going to finish strong. And besides, you know, he, he, he moves from young men right away, and he continues the verse by stating that the principle of submission, it applies to everybody. It applies to everybody, not just young men. Uh, even men that are in the same age group as their elders. It, it applies to everybody. Well, women, you know, it, it applies to everybody in the church. And that's hallmark number one. Hallmark number one this morning, if you're using your seat saver, uh, what number one, here we go. Uh, we clothe ourselves with humility toward the precious people of God. That's the first mark that we see today of an authentic Christian. We clothe ourselves with humility toward the precious people of God. Now, the word clothe, uh, it's a verb, but the noun form, the noun form of this Greek word is derived from the word that is referring to the apron of a slave. So the noun form is talking about an apron, It's okay? Suggesting that the people of God should be in the constant state of serving one another and to consistently behave in a humble manner. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now, this is one you don't see in a lot of the one another list, but here it is. A beautiful one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. It's a mutual thing, okay? I call this horizontal humility. Horizontal humility. Humility on the same plane. Human humility. Humility toward each other. Brother and sister humility. Humility within the church body. And it's a one another that we obviously or, or maybe might not think about very often. But we need to start thinking about it. It is one of the vital keys to a church family that dwells in spirit-empowered Christ-centered, God-glorifying harmony. You mark it down. A unified church is a church that is full of people who have on this apron of humility. They, are, they have clothed this, their self, themselves with humility toward one another. A church body that strives for unity will have this mark. Peter has to be thinking about Jesus when he writes this, doesn't he? Doesn't he? He has to be, okay? Again, we can ask him when we get to glory. He has to be thinking about that moment when Jesus got up from supper with his disciples 
and clothed himself in a towel, wrapping it around his waist, and began to wash their feet. That's got to be on Peter's mind when he's writing this. Oh, the Prince of Preachers says it so beautifully. Charles Spurgeon writes this. Humility is a qualification for greatness. Do you know how to be little? You are learning to be great. Can you submit? You are learning to rule. My symbolic sketch of a perfected Christian would be a king keeping the door or a prince feeding lambs or better still, the master washing his disciples' feet. When Peter gives his rationale for this cult, to humility, he may be thinking about Proverbs 3.34. Proverbs 3.34, we read this. Toward the scorners, in other words, those who arrogantly or pridefully look down on people, the scorners, toward the scorners, he is scornful. He opposes them. But to the humble, he gives favor. He exalts them. Have you ever noticed this in your life as you live it with professing Christians uh, around you? And let me go ahead and say really quick, I'm not thinking about anybody in this church family when I make the statement I'm about to make. But have you, ever, have you ever noticed that you can usually tell the professing believers who don't read their Bible very much and who receive subpar or no real Bible teaching, because they are often very self-centered. They're, 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 and, and right away you know, well, you, you hadn't been reading your Bible, or you hadn't been getting any teaching, because the call to humility is found often in Scripture, both Testaments, especially the New Testament. It was the main subject of Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, when she got the news that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. Remember this? And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Get it? Humble estate, call me blessed. Humility, exaltation. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. Fear of God is an act of humility. We're going to get to humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand in just a minute. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. The prideful are being humbled. <laughs> And exalted those of humble estate. That's almost the same wording in Mary's song. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. James uses the exact same wording as Peter in James 4 6. I wonder if they compared notes at, at one time. In James 4 6, we give this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Of course, they didn't need to compare notes. The same Holy Spirit was inspiring both of them 
to write these words. And along with his fellow apostles, Paul called for this humility often. A few examples, Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 to 3, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, eager, church family, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Don't you want to be a person like that? A person that's eager to maintain unity. Even it means sometimes setting aside your secondary, non-essential preference. Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And then Paul begins to list some results of being filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. A Spirit-filled person is a singing person. Giving thanks. A Spirit-filled person is a thankful person. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is for our purposes today, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. A spirit-filled person is a submissive person, not a doormat, not a milk toast, not a noodle backbone, but a gracious person, a humble person who is doing these things that we just read from these scriptures. Things like considering others more important than yourself. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We'll talk, come back and talk about that in just a minute. We see in the Ephesians passage that we just read that this submitting to one another, this clothing yourselves with humility toward one another, same way of saying the same thing, two ways of saying the same thing is a mark of the filling of the Spirit. So a Spirit-filled person is one who has clothed themselves with humility toward their brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that submitting to one another shows reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus. And that brings us to hallmark number two. Number two. An authentic Christian humbles themselves under the mighty hand of God. So as authentic Christians, we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Here we have, can you guess what it is? We've just talked about horizontal humility. Here we have vertical humility. Vertical humility. Horizontal humility, humility toward each other. I'm vertical humility, humility under, under the mighty hand of God, humbling ourselves under God. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, Jesus said this was true greatness. Listen to what he said. And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, 
Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children. Stop right there. Notice he did not say unless you turn and become childish. Okay? We're not talking about childishness. We're not talking about uh, uh, a constant state of spiritual immaturity. We're not talking about being childish. We're talking about being like a child, totally dependent. Uh, This probably, I don't know if this is a, each one of you, you know your own kids, okay, but for the most part, obedient. Maybe, I don't know, okay, you know them, okay, but they're totally dependent. That's the key word. They're totally dependent on you, especially in their very, very young years. They need you for everything. Okay, so that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about childishness, being childish, becoming like a child in their dependent nature on their father, on their parents. So unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, whoever humbles himself like a child who is dependent and trusting is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's a question for you. Here's a pondering question for you. Okay. I'll let you ponder it for about two or three seconds and then I'll give you my take on it. I wonder why Peter mentioned horizontal humility first. You would think that the vertical humility would be first because God is much more important than each other, okay, in a a relative sense. We're we're important to each other. Man, I love my church family, but God's more important, right? Right? I mean, I hope your pastor's important to you, but man, God's a lot more important. And that's why any good pastor, that's the way they would want it to be, okay? So why did he mention the horizontal humility first before the vertical humility under God? Humbling ourselves under God seems like it would be the starting point. And guess what? It is. It is. That is the starting point. But horizontal humility is the proof or evidence of vertical humility. Let me try to unpack that. Are you with me now? Are you with me so far, though? You with me? Okay. Horizontal humility, humility that we show toward each other, is the proof that we've humbled ourselves under God. And Peter starts with the proof or the evidence that one has submitted themselves to God. In other words, submission to God is demonstrated by our submission to each other. What did we just read in Ephesians chapter 5? We read that when we're filled with the Spirit, we are submitting to one another out of... With me? Out of or as a result of our reverence for Christ. Reverence for Christ comes first, then submission, humility showed toward his his people, follows as a proof 
okay, of our salvation. Not a root of our salvation, a fruit of it. We don't humble ourselves among each other to get saved. We humble ourselves among each other because we are saved. Are you with me? Okay. Reverence is an attitude that demonstrates humility and submission. Paul is saying in that Ephesians text that out of our reverence for or submission to Christ, we also submit to one another. It, it's automatic. Yeah, we're all at different levels of that, but we're growing. We're growing, okay? D- listen, don't we see the same principle taught by the Apostle John regarding the action of love? Okay? Let me remind you, 1 John 4, verse 20. John wrote this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He's a liar. (laughs) He's just a liar. John pulls no punches there. He's right in the face of this person that says they love God but hates people. He's right in his face. You're a liar. And then he explains, for he who who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, John said, don't tell me you love the invisible God when you don't love people that you see with your very eyes. You're a liar. Likewise, applying that same principle to the action of humbling ourselves, I believe it naturally follows to say, using the pattern of 1 John 4.20, if anyone says... I am submitted to God and does not submit to his brother. He's a liar. He's a liar. For he who does not humble himself before his brother, whom he has seen, cannot humble himself before God, whom he has not seen. Does that make sense? With me? Let's talk about mighty hand. Mighty hand, great word. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Have you ever done a phrase study of mighty hand? If you do, you'll find that this phrase is used not not, not 100% of the time, but a great percentage of the time with God's actions in rescuing his people, Israel, from Egypt, from Pharaoh. So mighty hand equates with God's saving hand. Time and time again, we hear this phrase in in relation to God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. Therefore, it has a direct connection to salvation. Like Exodus 3.19, when, when Moses is having the conversation with God in front of the burning bush. And he says this. The Lord says this, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by mighty hand. Then Exodus 32, 11, and after the fact of the Exodus verse, 
We read this, but Moses implored implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, the Exodus, with great power and with a mighty hand? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 21, then you shall say to your son, when the son asks about, what's the deal with this Passover thing? You will say, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Deuteronomy 7, 8, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, I did all that to point to the, to, the, to the belief, the teaching, the fact, I believe, that mighty hand pretty much refers to God's saving hand, to his salvation of his people. And listen to this. Wow, listen. That mighty hand never grows weary. You never have, you're never going to see that mighty hand in one of these old carpal tunnel little things that you wrap around your wrist, okay, which I need right now. Uh, but anyway, you're never going to see the mighty hand in a cast or in a sling, never. How do we know? Listen, Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 30 through 34. God's mighty hand never grows weary. Listen to what the prophet says. As I live, declares the Lord God. Surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the final day. He's talking about the consummation, the return of Jesus. Gathers his people, pours out wrath on the unbelievers. Surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. This mighty hand never gets tired. So it would be very wise to humble yourself under it. And that's what Peter is telling us. I'm very confident that Peter was familiar with the concept of God's mighty hand, and he rejoiced in it. And he is calling all Christians, all brothers and sisters in the Lord, to humble themselves under that mighty, loving, saving, sovereign hand of God. Now, there are a lot of other biblical ways to say this, right? This is one of the beauties of the Bible. It gives us, it gives us numerous phrases to communicate the same concept, like, die to self, Live to God. That's humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. Confessing Jesus as Lord. Same thing. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Take my yoke upon you. We should walk as he walked. Incline your heart to the word of God, walking in the way of God's law, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. Ecclesiastes 12, fear God and keep his commandments. Means the same thing. 
Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Who does the Lord, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So church family, let's do it. Let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In short, what we are referring to here is the utter and complete and total dependence upon God with no wavering, with no waffling. Let let Elijah's words continually echo in your ears when he stood on the mount and, 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 and shouted to the people of God in the contest with the prophets of Baal. How long will you waffle between two opinions? May we be a zero-waffling church. May we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. I guarantee you Peter knew this teaching because he read it in Psalm 147, verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. He heard it from Jesus in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will will be exalted. He certainly knew what Mary said in her song in Luke 152. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And as always, as always, oh, listen, final exclamation point on this hallmark that I've placed on your seat saver. Jesus provides the stereotype Jesus provides the model for his people. He is the prime example of the the first humbled, then exalted motif for those who follow him. This exaltation is exactly what God did for his son after he humbled himself and died for our sins. Let me refresh your memory again with this very familiar passage from chapter 2 of Philippians. Have this mind in your, among yourselves, beginning at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Don't you love that word? Don't you love that word? Among. What does that tell you? It's a corporate thing. It's a corporate thing. That's why, make the connections, dear brothers and sisters, that's why we're to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. With me? It's a corporate thing. Have this mind among yourself, not just in you singularly. Yes, you've got to have it. But more than that, it's a corporate call. Church, have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind at the core of your existence as a local church. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's been given to you in salvation. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, emptied himself, humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, we just read about it in the gospel reading, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Don't you love the connections? Don't you love the Bible? Gosh, it's so good. Immerse yourselves in it, dear church. Immerse yourselves in it. It's food for the soul. I got to quit leaving the text. He humbled himself. Our, our example. 
which we're called to do in this text. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's what Jesus did. Being found in human form, the word became flesh. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. Our example, what we're called to do. By becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, theologians call this radical reversal. We see it in the Bible all the time. Radical reversal. Jesus goes from the cross to a, to a, a, a grave to the right hand of God. How radical can you get? <laughs> radical reversal. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. What God has promised to do for us. Sometimes in this life. Sometimes not. But ultimately... We will rule with him. We will rule with Jesus. We are joint heirs with Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Have you confessed him as Lord? If not, today is the day. Don't wait another day. Today's the day of salvation. And the promise that comes with that is God will highly exalt you with his son. So, beloved, let's strive with all that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, just like Jesus did, knowing that his mighty hand that has saved us will also preserve us until he calls us home, when he will exalt us with his son. Hallmark number three. We cast all our, all our anxieties on the great faithfulness of God. We cast all our anxieties <clears throat> on the great faithfulness of God. Verse seven. Casting all your anxieties on him <clears throat> because he cares for you. Here, what, what do we have here? Do you see what we have here? We have the positive action that results from the heart attitude. The heart attitude of submission to God in humbling ourselves under his mighty hand <clears throat> leads to the mental activity of placing our anxieties on Jesus. As Bob Utley wrote, he bore our sin... And now he bears our anxiety and fear. When we have humbled ourselves under God's mighty hand, we will trust him with all our anxieties. Let me say that again. <clears throat> when we have humbled ourselves under God's mighty hand, we will trust him with all our anxieties. Humbling ourselves under God leads to casting our worries on him. J.P. Lang wrote, <clears throat> holy freedom from all anxious care is essential to submission to God. These two things go together. In other words, the compulsive worrier has not submitted his or her heart, completely to God. The compulsive worrier 
has not submitted his or her heart completely to God. Let's hone in on that word cast, that verb there, cast. <clears throat> so it's, a, it's kind of a violent word. It means to hurl, uh, to place or put something on, with, on something else with great energy. And it's not just a you know, passive little thing, a little milk toast kind of thing. It's, it's a forceful act conceived of as throwing on forcefully. In fact, in one of the um, Greek lexicons, we read this interpretation, stop worrying and trust. Stop worrying and trust. An actual interpretation of the word. In other words, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. We're not passive in this. We're not hoping this happens to us. It's something we do. We energetically, as an act of our will, which is now under the control of God because we've humbled ourselves under his mighty hand, we thrust forcefully all our cares on Jesus. All of them. Notice the wording. All. Huh, uh, casting all. Your, well, this big one, I need to really keep this one. I, no, All. All of them, every single one, with no reservation, big cares and little cares, secret cares and public cares. Cast them all on the Lord. <clears throat> now, why can we do that? Because we understand that our biggest care, our biggest problem, which was sin against God, has already been taken care of. It's already been taken care of. So, so we're trusting God no matter what. No matter what, we're trusting God. We know that he will ultimately take care of us, even if we're going through hell right now. Ultimately, he will take care of us because he's already he's proven that by taking care of our biggest problem. Worrying or being anxious will not add one day to the number of days God has planned for us. Nor will it solve our problem. Kistemacher writes, anxiety has a debilitating effect on our lives and results from our loss of confidence and assurance. If we doubt, we assume the burden of worries and thus demonstrate a lack of faith. Therefore, Peter urges us to cast our worries on God and to trust in Him. So, beloved, what anxiety, what care or cares do you need to cast upon the Lord today? When you're at this table this morning, do that. Do that. Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? That's hallmark number four. Because we know he cares for us. Authentic Christians know the assurance of the loving care of God. We know he loves us. Without a shadow of a doubt, cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Here's another way to say it. 
Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love. Other translations, God proves his love. God demonstrates his love. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Knowing that our great creator and wonderful Savior truly cares for us brings great stability and confidence to our lives. Knowing that not a single one of our numbered hairs will perish gives us assurance to press on in the midst of difficult and troubling and painful and heartbreaking times. The Apostle Paul prayed for us in this. Remember what we studied this passage I'm about to read a long, a long time ago. We went into great detail on it. It's an amazing passage. But the Apostle Paul prayed for us in this manner in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 19. Listen to this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every, every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, here it is, may have strength to comprehend, understand, grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prayed that we would know how, how, how much God cares for us. He prayed that, that we would know how much he loves us. And do you see the connection here? When it begins to dawn on us how much God really loves us, we will find that more and more the fullness of God in the person of the Holy Spirit will fill us or control us at the core of our being. And what happens when the Holy Spirit fills us? Well, we read in Ephesians 5. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the desire of every true Christian during their stay on this planet. Their very brief stay in comparison to eternity. To be filled with the fullness of God. And it happens when we begin to realize by the grace of God and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the precious Word of God how much God loves us and cares for us. So let's recap real quick. We've seen four vital hallmarks of the authentic Christian life. Number one, we demonstrate humility to those around us. We clothe ourselves with Christ-like, with this Christ-like quality. We're constantly and consistently humble toward one another. Number two, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. 
We display total and absolute dependence on Him. Thus, we live confidently and courageously no matter what. No matter what happens. Number three, we trust God with all our worries and all our anxieties. We cast them on Him with forceful abandon and leave them there and then press on with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And number four, we know the blessed assurance of a loving heavenly Father. And as we grow in that assurance, we are filled with all the fullness of God. May these hallmarks dominate the life of this church family for our good and God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for speaking to us today from your precious word. Thank you for the Apostle Peter and the example he is to us. Thank you for saving him, calling him, using him to write your scriptures so that we can know your mind and know your will for us. Plant the roots of these four hallmarks deep, deep, deep into the heart of this church for the good of every individual, for the corporate good of the body, for the glory of your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we get to come to the table of grace and commune with Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, fellowship with each other, remember what he did for us, to prove his love for us, and to, uh, to remember, to remember, to, to be thankful, to uh, examine ourselves, maybe to cast some anxieties on Jesus. If you're visiting with us today, we're so thankful that you're here. We're so thankful. And if you're a Christian... You've identified with the body of Christ through baptism, and you're not under any kind of discipline from a former church that has broken the fellowship with God's people, then we invite you to join the membership here at Rockdale Community Church. It's our great joy to to invite you. So uh, let's hear what Paul said about, about this meal in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
That's why many of you are weak and ill. and Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. The one who humbled himself. Taking on the form of a servant. Being made in the likeness of of flesh. Living a perfect life and dying on a cross for us. We joyfully remember that today and joyfully enter into fellowship with the risen Christ at these very tables. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience to the Father and giving us the example of humility. Precious Holy Spirit, help us to follow that example for the good of our brothers and sisters the glory of the precious Trinity. So, fathers, we come today. Help us to truly examine ourselves. Are we humble before each other? And is that, is that a result of our humbling ourselves under your mighty hand? Are there any anxieties we're holding on to, believing you can't deal with them? Help us to remember you bore all our sin. You can certainly bear our anxieties. So show us what we need to cast today. And get up from this table in total trust. God, thank you for loving us. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for proving, demonstrating, showing that love for us in what we're remembering right now. The cross. We bless your name. We worship you. Be honored in this time. Search us and know our heart. Try us. See if there be any wicked way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. For our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.